Mosaic believes that the church is designed to be a genuine community of people, creating a safe space of belonging for all, seeking to serve our neighbors with the compassion of God, providing opportunities to learn to be more like Jesus, and living life well together. This can't happen in a one-hour time slot on Sunday mornings, yet we desire to be a worshiping, missional community in Clayton, North Carolina. Visit MosaicClayton.com or find us on Facebook, Mosaic Church of Clayton. We've done um, two and now this will be our third conversation involving stones. Uh, the last two weeks uh, we've been stoned and um, now a third week dealing with stones again in, in yet a different light. Um, all three of these stories have to do with um, conflict and when conflict you know, comes to the point of violence and, and maybe even no turning back and yet we've seen in each of these stories uh, that we've been able to pull back, we've been able to find reconciliation, we've been able to see uh, a, a different way, a way of forgiveness, a way to come back from the conflict. Here, you know, it's a, a long passage from Joshua 22 is where our story is found today. Last week we were in uh, the book of John and, uh, and so this week we've jumped backwards into the book of Joshua. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have observed all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed me in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your kindred these many days down to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your kindred as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. We're picking up mid-story. Uh, the Joshua and the Israelites have entered the land of Canaan and they have settled in this land. Two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half tribe of the Manasseh, would really like permission to live on the other side of the Jordan. Everybody's living on one side of the Jordan River, and these folks want to live on the other. And here Joshua's saying, sure, uh, we can do that. There's a tiny little map here. Should have found something bigger of Israel. We won't spend long on it, but uh, I've, I've circled here the two and a half tribes and where they want to be. And then you know, I drew, I made a little line to say, okay, here's the Jordan River. Uh, so everybody's on uh, the east side. Yeah, that's right. No, west side. <laughs> and these guys want to be on the east side of things. That's not a problem, is it? Sure, go in peace. Twelve tribes are divided by this river. This Jordan River. Uh, on the east side, we have the nine and a half tribes. Hey, I got it messed up here. Um, it should be the flip of that. The two and a half tribes on, uh, on the east side, but I said west there. All right, let's go forward. Uh, when they came to the region near the Jordan that lies in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of great size. The Israelites heard that the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh had built 
an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region near the Jordan on the side that belongs to the Israelites. And here's where our stones enter the story. If you're wondering where, where is this all going? Uh, so the two and a half tribes, they decide to build a, a stone altar there to sort of connect them with the people on the other side of the river. You remember uh, just the, I believe it was the Sunday that Andy, uh, was his last Sunday here. I wasn't here that Sunday, but uh, you guys had rocks, stones, I guess miniature stones, we'll call them rocks here, uh, and you wrote some things on them. Uh, and on that Sunday, it was really meaningful. I, again, I wasn't here for it, but I'm assuming it was a meaningful moment for you. Uh, but... Does anybody remember what those rocks meant then? And can't you see, maybe some of you are nodding there internally and saying, yeah, I remember what those rocks, I remember us doing that. Uh, but will you remember a year from now? Or five years from now? Or ten years from now? You'll be cleaning out the closet on a, on a fifth Sunday <laughs> uh, cleanup day and, and you'll be digging around the storage room and somebody will open up a box and in it will be this jar with rocks in it. Does anybody know what these are? No, no, I don't remember what, what did we use this for. I, I have no idea. Uh, maybe ask one of the old timers. <laughs> it was here years ago. And maybe, maybe somebody will call up an old timer, no, not naming any names. Do you remember what the rocks are for? Uh, and maybe, maybe somebody will remember, and maybe you won't. Uh, and, and maybe you might say, well, you know, um, maybe we should get rid of those. Uh, they, we don't know what they mean anymore. And, and maybe they come from a time where we don't even want to remember anymore. And so, you know, here, here we find that the Israelites heard that these two and a half tribes had set up this altar. What's their response going to be? Yeah, let's see. You know, we might say, well, so what? So what? They did this. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the Israelites gathered together at Shiloh to make war against them. What? To make war against them? Why? It seems like such an innocent thing that they've done here. Here I've got a picture. This is from uh, the land of Israel. It's, it's one, a remnant of one of these altars, of one of these uh, sets of stones that have been set up as, as an altar of sorts. So our question for today, really, I mean, the, the point of this story is how does estrangement happen in relationship? Estrangement is a, it's a, it's a weird word, isn't it? Uh, but I chose it because I think it fits perfectly. Uh, how do we go from knowing someone to being a stranger? Estrangement, that's what it indicates, doesn't it? From, uh, from how do we go from having a relationship to the relationship falling apart so much that we no longer even know that person? We no longer even recognize them. They're, they might as well be a stranger to us. And that seems to be what has happened here in this story. Uh, they, the two and a half tribes go on one side of the river and the other nine and a half stay on the other. And now it's come to the point that they don't really even recognize each other anymore. They become estranged in some ways. Well, you know, I've got about a couple of steps it seems that uh, life goes through when estrangement happens. And I've already got the first one listed up here. Things change. 
Things change. And, and we might even think back with, with mosaic and this jar of rocks. Things change. The rocks represent some kind of change. Uh, but will we remember what that is? Not all change is bad, but all change comes with the potential for conflicts, doesn't it? Think about a kitchen renovation. <laughs> Kitchen renovation is a good thing. Maybe you got marble countertops. Maybe you got some more cabinets in there. This is fantastic. But then one evening, you're in the kitchen making dinner. Where's the cheese grater? You used to always be right here, and it's no longer here. See, this is why we shouldn't have done this. I can't find the cheese grater. Right? What? What? Where did that conflict come from? Well, we just changed things a little bit, and now we can't find what we used to be able to find, and it. And it irritates us. It seems that the two and a half tribes on the far side of the river, they intuited, they seemed to, they knew that this change might be the cause of trouble. And that's why they built this altar, as we're going to find out. They built it so they could remember and that the other Israelites would remember who they were. In fact, the name Manasseh, uh, the two and a half tribes, one of them is called Manasseh. Manasseh means to forget. And they knew that, you know, if we change things, if we move over to this other side of the river, people are going to forget who we are and where we've come from. A second step in this process of estrangement is that intentions get misunderstood. Uh, Oh, I've got sorry. I thought I had something else there. What is, what is the altar for? Why is it there? Uh, intentions get misunderstood. The, the people on the, uh, the nine and a half tribes, half tribes on one side of the river, they see this altar and they assume, I guess they must assume, that the two and a half tribes have set up an idol. They set up some kind of false god. They've set up some kind of new type of worship. And it upsets them. They want to make war against them. Let me tell you about one of my favorite books of all time, uh, Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. It's a book about running, as it says in the title. But it revolves, the story revolves around the, uh, the Tarumara, which is an ancient tribe of running people who are still alive. They live in the uh, Copper Canyons of uh, Mexico. It's about 20,000 square miles of wilderness, of rugged wilderness in Mexico, of um, randomly slashed caverns and ravines uh, deeper and broader than the Grand Canyon. Um, th there's no way to, to move on a straight line. There's no way to really even use cars in this area. So uh, the Taramara run from place to place. They've run out of necessity. Uh, these impossible distances, they'll run 50 miles or more to get from one place to another. Um, but it's also a rugged place. Bandits hide out there. Drug runners hide out there. Bodies get dumped in the canyon all the time. Everything in the Copper Canyons is trying to kill you. <laughs> from the heat and uh, the disorientation of, the, of this maze-like caverns uh, to uh, the scorpions and the cactus and everything in there is trying to bring you down some way or another. And so the Taramara people have developed uh, a meat cleaver of a vocabulary to describe people. In their rugged, arid, dry world, there are only two types of people. There are what they call the, uh, the Ramuri, 
who run from trouble and the chibochis who cause trouble. <laughs> and maybe in your own life, uh, you know, you've you met people. You could divide people up like that. Ramari who run from trouble and the chibochis who cause trouble. And it feels like here uh, the intentions are misunderstood. The assumption is that either these two and a half tribes um, they must be causing trouble. <laughs> uh, we, are the, we are the trouble avoiders. They must be the troublemakers. There's no other way around it. Accusations are made. They came to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead and said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of Israel, of the Lord, What is this treachery that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away today from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar today in rebellion against the Lord? Accusations are made. Notice, they didn't ask the two and a half tribes, why, why did you do this? Why have you built this altar? What is this thing supposed to mean? They assumed intentions and then made an accusation. Uh, what is this treachery that you've committed against the God of Israel, turning away from the Lord and following? They assume this must be some kind of idol worship. Um, you know, I, I really, our family has kind of really gotten into when it was when it came out and was popular. The BBC Sherlock Holmes series with Benedict Cumberbatch. Maybe some of you've seen that. I think it's floating around Netflix these days. But uh, it's like the, it's a 21st century version of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and um, you know, Sherlock Holmes is of course this nutty genius. You know, he's really quirky and not very social, but uh, but he observes everything. And, you know, what's amazing on the show is that he can tell from this thread of a dog hair on your coat to a little scuff of mud on your shoe where you were and what crime you committed. Uh, he jumps to conclusions. And, of course, on the TV show, his conclusions are always right. <laughs> but in real life, that's not the case, is it? That's why we call it jumping to conclusions. Uh, whenever we do that and make those accusations, um, we're almost always wrong. We, we haven't understood the situation. And we, we jump to a conclusion. We make an accusation. And maybe you've done this before. You've assumed someone was doing something and you accuse them. And perception becomes reality. Here's the fourth step. This perception becomes reality. It, it turns into groupthink at this point. Those accusations are made, and once we make them, we, we believe them. Uh, we begin to believe that the two and a half tribes must have abandoned the Lord and now are worshiping some other God. Um, it's what we call groupthink. You, you may remember the movie Men in Black. Uh, the action comedy starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones about uh, aliens coming from outer space and, so, and disguising themselves as ordinary humans. And uh, the men in black are the agents to sort of oversee all of these aliens living among us and looking like humans. And Tommy Lee Jones has to explain to his new recruit, Will Smith, who explain all this? And Will Smith asks, you know, why why this big secret? People are smart; they can handle it, can't they? I mean, why not just tell people the truth? And Tommy Lee Jones has to say, you know, a person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals. Uh, 
And you know it. And he's right, isn't he? A person is smart. But people, when they get together uh, and, they, and they hear these accusations, uh, the perception becomes reality. They're dumb, panicky, dangerous animals all of a sudden uh, when together like that. Um, when we go along with the herd, uh, when we go along with this group think, then the perceptions become reality. But I love Joshua 22. I love this story because, you know, what we anticipate should happen next. Um, given everything we know about dumb, panicky animals, <laughs> humans, uh, what should happen next is that the nine and a half tribes should march across the Jordan River with swords rattling and they should lay waste to the two and a half tribes. They should cut them down to a person and destroy them all. The two and a half tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh answer the accusations, the Lord, God of gods, the, God, the Lord, the God of gods, he knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith towards the Lord, do not spare us today. For building an altar to turn away from the following of the Lord, or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or offerings of well-being on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, the Reubenites and the Gadites. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. They, they have a chance to explain it. I mean, here's what I love about this story. The two and a half tribes take an opportunity to explain themselves. They're allowed an opportunity to explain themselves. And they don't get defensive about it. They could have said, how dare you make an accusation against us? How dare you come at us with swords? How dare you uh, assume all these things about us? But instead, they take the high road, they explain their actions. Well, we did it as a, a remembrance. We set it up so that our children would remember and that your children would remember who we are and whose God we worship. It's a beautiful moment here. The two and a half tribes go on to explain, Therefore we said, Let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between the generations after us. That's a beautiful thing. It's misunderstood, but it's a beautiful thing when it can be properly understood. And then even more beautiful, to their credit, the nine and a half tribes listen to the two and a half tribes. They accept the explanation. When the priest Phinehas and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the family of Israel who were with him, heard the words of the Reubenites and the Gadites and the Manassites who spoke, they were satisfied. How hard is it to swallow our pride, admit we were wrong, and, and receive that word? They had gathered for war. Uh, they had a lot at stake here. To then back out and say, oh, you know what, I guess we were wrong. I guess we did misunderstand. 
And how hard is that for us to do? When we, when we have made an assumption, we've made an accusation, we find out we're wrong, sometimes we just stick with it anyways. Well, it's still, you shouldn't have done it that way. Still, We're so hard-headed, aren't we? <laughs> we don't want to admit we're wrong. And we don't want to apologize. To God be the glory. Joshua 22 ends... Today we know the Lord is with us. Um, They say, you know what? Um, At the end of the day, what really matters is that God gets the glory here. Uh, My pride is not what's at stake here. To God be the glory. I I can lay that down. I don't have to be right because God is God. Some of you may remember a couple of years ago, the group One Republic in the song Apologize was played all over the radio, and you can go look it up after. And, you know, when you see the title, I've already got the words up there, so, but uh, try not to think about the words for a moment. But when you see the title Apologize in a, in a Pop 40 song, you know, the assumption is it's about the virtues of apologizing. It's about the benefit of apologizing. It's about a, a relationship uh, that, in which some person apologizes. And yet, when you hear the lyrics or see the lyrics, you tell me that you need me, then you go and cut me down. You tell me that you're sorry. You didn't think I'd turn around and say, it's too late to apologize. It's too late. Too late. Um, It's a good song. But it turns out, it's not a song about apologizing. It's a song about when it's too late to apologize. Is it possible that we can become so estranged from each other that it's too late to apologize? Is it ever too late to apologize? Relationships are all about conflict. (laughs) And when you have a relationship, you're going to have conflict. And sometimes that conflict can get to the point where it feels, you know, it's too late to turn back. We go to war. We cut ourselves off from the other person. We have to end it in some way. But what I want to tell you this morning, and what I think Joshua 22 is all about is that it's never too late to apologize. Um, That there is no expiration date on forgiveness. And that even when a relationship dies, thank God we believe in Jesus Christ who rose from the dead and can raise a relationship from the dead. That's the power of reconciliation. That's the power of the cross. Christ can heal the unhealable wound. Christ can solve the unsolvable dilemma. And Christ can make a way even when it's too late to apologize. And at the end of the day, that's what this table is all about. When we come to share this bread in this cup, we're remembering. We're doing exactly what they did in Joshua 22. They'd set up uh, uh, this altar 
to remember, to not forget. And we come here, we're remembering, we're not forgetting. What is it that we're remembering? The power in the blood, the power in the body, the power of Christ's forgiveness of us. That is worth remembering. Remembering.